Anyway, my attempt at humor this morning, you will find a, a solid reminder of a very important truth. Many times in the kingdom of God, seemingly uncomplimentary things and even opposite things can go together. I mean, Jesus even taught us this when he said things like, the first shall be last. When he said that we receive by giving away and that we really begin to live when we learn to die to self. This is what I would call the principle of oxymoronic truth because oxymorons are seeming opposites that complement each other. And when this happens within the kingdom of God, a powerful truth is revealed. And there are some examples of, the, of this found in our scripture reference this morning. I'd like you to go ahead and turn to the book of Acts chapter nine, and let's take a look at what it says. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, or you can follow along on the screens behind me because the scriptures will be up there for you to read along with us. Acts chapter nine, verses one through 31, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he found, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go to this city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him, called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man 
who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is one of the most incredible conversion stories that is ever in the Bible, and I enjoy it more every single time that I read it. So let me point out to you the first example of oxymoronic truth that is found in this text. Our holy God can use a well-known sinner to proclaim the gospel. You see, in our minds, he is the last person that we would think that God would use as an infamous sinner like Saul, but of course it's exactly what God did, something totally opposite of what we would ever conjure up in our mind. In fact, thanks to the amazing grace of God, Saul, or Paul, as he has been known since his conversion, became the greatest missionary slash evangelist that the world has ever known. His life was powerfully used by God. And, and this is amazing to us because holy God and well-known sinner are two phrases that you just don't see going together too often, do you? Plus, we know that Saul wasn't just your typical, ordinary, everyday sinner. He did horrible things before he became a Christian. In fact, later in his life, Paul admitted that he was the worst of all sinners in 1 Timothy 1.16. And historians would agree with his self-assessment because in his earlier days, he set himself up as the arch enemy of the early church because originally his sole purpose in life was to destroy the church. This was a well-known historical fact. Just look back at what the members of the synagogue in Damascus said about him in verse 21. Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? That's what Saul did. That was what his mission was, to find, to arrest, and even execute Christians in that time. He was consumed with the idea of persecuting 
followers of the way, which was the name of what they called the early Christian movement. Luke tells us that the very air that Saul was breathing was threats against the disciples of Jesus. And I believe that a a normal question for anyone to ask is why was Saul like this? How did he end up being the the most well-known religious terrorist, if you will, of his day? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to look back at Saul's upbringing. He grew up in Tarsus, a city that was located on a main trade route between the Orient and Rome. Saul's father was a tent maker and living in that city where caravans constantly were coming and going, it brought nearly unlimited business and great wealth. And he used, his father used that vast wealth to give his son the best possible education he could give him. While at the same time, making certain that that Saul understood everything there was to know about his Jewish heritage. Author John Pollock, who wrote The Apostle, A Life of Paul, described Saul's early life like this. Paul's parents were Pharisees, members of the party most fervent in Jewish nationalism and strict in obedience to the law of Moses. They sought to guard their offspring against contamination. Friendships with Gentile children were discouraged. Greek ideas were despised. Though Paul could speak Greek from infancy, and though he had a working knowledge of Latin, at home his family spoke Aramaic, the language of Judea, a derivative of Hebrew. They looked to Jerusalem as Islam looks to Mecca. Their privileges as freemen of Tarsus and Roman citizens were nothing to the high honor of being Israelites, the people of promise to whom alone the living God had revealed his glory and his plans. By his 13th birthday, Paul had mastered Jewish history, the poetry of the Psalms and the majestic literature of the prophets. A swift brain like this could retain what he had heard as instantly as a modern photographic, as a modern photographic mind retains a printed page. He was ready for higher education. Probably in the year that Augustus died, A.D. 14, the adolescent Paul was sent by sea to Palestine. During the next five or six years, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Under his tutelage, Paul became a skilled rabbi part teacher and part lawyer who persecuted or defended those who broke the sacred law. Paul outstripped his contemporaries at this. He had a powerful mind which could lead to a seat on the Sanhedrin and make him a ruler of the Jews. So you got to understand that due to his strict Jewish upbringing, as well as Gamaliel's rigorous instruction, Saul had become a very proud man, especially when it came to his Jewish heritage. He knew the Jewish scriptures like the back of his hand, including all of the prophecies, I might add, of the coming Messiah. But like many of his Jewish proud peers, Paul misinterpreted those prophecies. I mean, he had a very exalted concept of what God's Messiah was gonna be like. And in his mind, Jesus of Nazareth 
was not going to be that by a long shot. The mere suggestion to him that a Galilean peasant who was crucified by the Romans would be God's anointed, well, to Saul, that was an absolute insult to Judaism. I like Warren Wearsby's imaginary answer that Paul might have provided to anyone who dared ask him why he persecuted Jesus' followers. This is what he wrote. This, he wrote this as though Saul was saying this. Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Do you expect me to believe that a crucified nobody is the promised Messiah? According to our law, anybody who is hung on a tree is cursed. Would God take a cursed false prophet and make him the Messiah? No, his followers are preaching that Jesus is both alive and doing miracles through them, but their power comes from Satan, not God. This is a dangerous sect, and I intend to eliminate it before it destroys our historic Jewish faith. So you gotta understand that in Saul's mind, he was doing a good thing. He thought he was persecuting the church in the name of God. Yes, he knew the scriptures, but he had a flawed interpretation that justified his actions. So the problem here is quite simple. Saul had all kinds of head knowledge. His parents had taken special care to ensure that he had religion, but he didn't have a relationship with God. All Saul had was an inherited ethnic faith. And parents, I think it's important that we pay special attention here. Certainly it is important that we teach our children the doctrines of Christianity. It's also important that we help them to understand the morals and the ethics that go with our faith. But it is far more important that we introduce our children to the person of Jesus Christ. Yes. If our kids grow up believing that Christianity just means going to church every Sunday and learning the right kinds of songs or praying the, the right kinds of prayers or even standing for the right thing, then we are failing them as parents. If our children equate Christianity with just being against abortion and premarital sex and drugs and all the other taboos of our day, then we have failed them. You see, we don't want our children to inherit religion like Saul did. We want them to meet our savior and be in a personal relationship with him. The most important thing we can do to our children is to introduce them to Jesus. Well, fortunately, as we read a few moments ago, Saul met Jesus and he became a believer himself. And this happened while on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians who lived there, but God had other plans. In essence, it's kind of like God arrested him. A bright light shone from heaven and it was so bright that it knocked Saul off of his feet and Christ himself appeared to him. Saul, Saul actually saw Jesus in all of his glorious brilliance. And here we see another sort of an oxymoron, oxymoron here because ironically, the last person to have seen the resurrected glorified Christ was who? It was Stephen. 
Remember, right before he was martyred, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And now the man, the very man who held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death was the very next one to see Jesus. Who would have thought? God works in mysterious ways. Well, the amazing sight of our resurrected Lord was the last thing Saul's eyes beheld for three entire days. Because when he left, Saul suddenly realized that God had taken his sight away. Think about it. For the, for the first time in his proud, self-sustained life, Saul found himself as a desperate dependent. And he actually had to be led by hand into Damascus and entry into that city that I'm sure he never ever calculated in his mind would ever happen to him or he would ever anticipate. And in the hours and the days that, that followed his encounter with Jesus, I am certain that Saul was reviewing and rerunning everything that just happened to him in his mind, moment by moment. And as he did, he realized this Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. And it dawned on this Jew of Jews that he had been fighting God himself. He had been opposing the very one that he was supposed to be serving. He must have shaken his head for days thinking, what have I done? And how could I possibly got this so wrong. Now to a person of no religious concern, this might not be important, but to a proud Jew like Saul, it was literally everything. I mean, he wanted to be on God's side above all else. And to discover that he had been contending against God instead of serving God must have been terribly humiliating a real hit to his pride. I'm sure he was filled with terror when he thought, what is God going to do to me after all I have done to him? Well, we all know the answer to that question. Saul repented of his, of his sin and our holy and righteous God forgave him. And then he took the life of this well-known sinner and he used it in a mighty powerful way. No one can look at the life of Saul, that infamous sinner whom God turned into Paul, a now famous saint, and say anything otherwise. This is probably the most powerful conversion of all time, and it appears in the book of Acts three different times. Saul, who was the opponent of Christianity, became the proponent of Christianity. Saul, who hated Christ, now heralded Christ. God took all of Paul's strength and his educated mind and his understanding, his deep understanding of the scriptures, and he used them all to convince other Jews that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And by the way, let me take this moment of time to point out that there is nothing wrong with a good education to prepare a person for the ministry. In fact, I've heard people put down ministers who went to college or, or seminary to prepare for God's call. They think that if you've been called, you just go. You know, God called you, so just go. He called you, you're ready to do it. 
And, and education, for some reason, they feel like is something that is, is less spiritual. Well, if you are a person who thinks that way, then listen to this. The person that God used most in the New Testament was Saul. And as I said, he had received the best education that his, his day had to offer. And the person most used by God in the Old Testament was Moses, a man who also received the best education available at his time. So ministers today have two really good examples to follow. It's, and it's important that a minister studies, as the word of God says, to show himself approved. Well, God used many of Saul's qualities, like his education, but he also took Saul's undesirable qualities and he replaced them with desirable ones. He replaced Saul's cruel hatred with love. His rough, hard-nosed treatment of people with gentleness and his pride with humility. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Well, God used all this reshaping combined with his newfound love for Jesus, and he made him Paul, a man who immediately went out to proclaim Jesus throughout the synagogues in Damascus and all over the world. Chuck Swindoll put it this way, I know of no other person in the Bible aside from Christ himself who had a more profound influence on his world and ours than Paul. And this should really encourage us because if God can use a sinner like Saul, then he can use a sinner like me and he can use a sinner like you. Don't ever doubt what God can do through you. In fact, the files of heaven are literally filled with stories of redeemed and refitted renegades and rebels of all different kinds. Such is a story of a man named Mel Trotter who lived in the early part of the 20th century. He was an alcoholic who again and again and again promised his wife that he would give up drinking for good. Once he managed to stay dry for 11 and a half weeks, but at the end his desire for alcohol consumed him and overcame him and he got drunk again. He sold their horse in order, in order to pay for another round of drinks. And he reached the point that he would commit burglary in order to feed his awful habit. His wife and his child suffered desperately and terribly for his sin, going without food because he wasted all of their money on booze. When their son was about two years old, Trotter came home after another drinking spree and he found him dead in his mother's arms. He put his arms around his wife and he cried and he apologized profusely. Later, he swore on his baby's coffin that he would never touch another drop of alcohol. But two hours after the funeral, he came again staggering blind drunk into the house. He had stolen the shoes off of his son's dead body and sold them to buy another drink. Eventually, the guilt of all of his sin led Trotter to decide to end his life on January 19th, 1897. On his way, while walking towards Lake Michigan, with the intention of, in, of drowning himself in those frigid cold waters, he passed the door of the Pacific Garden Mission. And he went inside 
and he heard the testimony of another alcoholic named Harry Monroe, who told how Jesus had delivered him from his addiction. Trotter responded by asking Jesus into his heart and into his life, and God forgave him and freed him from the bondage of alcohol, and then God used that man to open up 60 more such uh, houses all across America. He eventually became the supervisor of a chain of them stretching from Boston all the way out to San Francisco. Now, as I said, in, yeah, you can clap for that. That's, a, that's an incredible story and a true one. As I said, in the kingdom of God, oxymoronic truths can teach us a great deal. And as we've already seen in this particular example, this is no exception. But I want to point out to you two other lessons that we can learn from the fact that our holy God can and still does use sinners. And here's number one. When we stray, God will often use pain to get our attention. I mean, our Lord blinded Saul so that he could finally see. He caused him to endure this discomfort and fear of being sightless. Why do you think he did that? Because I believe because as his creator, he knew that this was the only way he was going to get Paul to understand. And oftentimes, God will use these same kind of tactics on you and I. It reminds me of the story of a shepherd who lived in Ireland. His granddaughter came to visit him. She walked into the barn and she noticed one of the the young lambs had his leg in a splint and she asked her grandfather, Grandpa, what, had, what happened? And he said, that lamb had a habit of running off. So one day I broke his leg. A little girl heard this, she began to cry. She asked, why on earth would you do that, Grandpa? Her grandfather said to her, well, the little guy had a habit of running off and every time he would do that, he would put himself in danger. He would fall off, he could fall off the edge of a cliff and kill himself or a wolf or some other predator could come and, and eat him. Every time he ran off, I had to go and get him. Then I would set him with the rest of the flock only to have him run off again. So I broke his leg. Then I set the bone and I put a splint on him. And as I was doing this, I, I talked to him and I comforted him and I consoled him. Now I have to carry water to him every day. Not only that, I have to feed him by hand. As I do, I continue to talk to him and I comfort him. And by the time his leg heals, he will know my voice. He will know that I am the one who took care of him. He will come when I call him. He will stay with me no matter what. I will be able to lead him and the rest of the sheep will follow him. This lamb will one day be the best sheep in the flock because I broke his leg. You see, in order to break its will, I had to break its leg. Well, high point, I just want to say to you that for God to be able to use us, he sometimes needs to break us like he did with Saul. He broke him but then he restored him. And in that process, Saul got to know his master. He got to know and understand his redeemer. And he followed Jesus faithfully for the rest of his life. And in doing so, he has inspired countless millions upon millions to do the same thing. So let me ask you this morning, 
Are any of you going through a painful time right now? If so, could God be allowing this pain so you might turn away from your continual self-dependency upon you and yourself and what you can accomplish and to turn it into complete and total dependency upon God? Could he be teaching you to listen to his still small voice instead of always going in your own direction? Well, this leads me to another bit of oxymoronic truth that we see here. Number two, God seeks us even when we run from him. In fact, God always yearns to be in a relationship with us no matter what, no matter how much we have sinned against him. No matter how far we have run away from him, God pursues us. There's an old saying that that is true. It says, no matter how far you've run from God, it's always only one step back to him. And we see this here in Saul's life because his experience on Damascus Road was not a sudden conversion as much as it was a sudden surrender. You see, God had been pursuing a relationship with Saul his entire life. But Saul, like many of us do, resisted him. He knew better. Put up the hand and we say, that's close enough, God. He did that for many, many years. In fact, Saul was referring to how God pursued him later on in Acts and he shared his testimony with Agrippa. He said that for years... He had been kicking against the goads of God. By the way, when I did my PowerPoint, my secretary said, did you mean to say goals? She didn't understand uh, what what I was talking about because there are going to be several slides here talking about different goads that that God used. A goad is basically a long stick. It's blunt on one end and it's very sharp on the other. Back then, farmers used the pointed end to urge stubborn ox into action and motion. And occasionally, the beast would kick against the goats. That's what was referred to in that scripture. But the more he kicked, the more likely it was to stab into the flesh of his leg, causing even greater pain. Well, Saul realized that God had been seeking him for years using various goads to to prod him to turn away from his sin. In fact, I want to look at the various goads that God used to to prod Saul. Here's the first one. The goad of Jesus' life and his words. I am sure that Saul had heard Jesus preach in, in public places. After all, they were about the same age. Surely, this zealous young Pharisee would have been one of the first to go out and to investigate this popular teacher named Jesus, this healer from Galilee. And I think that the words that Jesus spoke haunted Saul. He knew in his heart that what Jesus spoke was the truth, but he fought those feelings by thinking that it was of Satan. Secondly, we see the goad of Stephen's peaceful death. I told you, I think two weeks in a row, that Saul never forgot Stephen. And it wasn't the fact that Stephen died, I think as much as it was the way that Stephen died. 
There was no screaming. There was no pitiful pleas for mercy. There was no cursing. There was no recanting of his faith. Instead, what did Stephen do? He, he prayed for his executioners, just like Jesus had done. I imagine Saul wondered, how could a bad man die like that? Didn't make sense in his very bright mind. And then the third we see is the goad of other Christians' courageous faith. Surely Saul could not have escaped noticing the courage of his prisoners while the believers that he viciously apprehended bravely endured whatever he threw their way. They stood firm in their allegiance to their master, to their savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And their undaunted courage in the face of certain death must have made Saul question his actions. So you see, God sought Saul. He goaded and he prodded that stubborn pride of that Pharisee. And day after day, Saul would kick against those goads until that day on, Dam on the Damascus road. He finally got the message. He quit kicking and he surrendered his life to Jesus. C.S. Lewis compared God's conquering of Saul's rebel will to a divine chess player when he wrote this, systematically and patiently maneuvering his opponent into a corner until he finally conceded. Checkmate, I love that. Let me ask you this morning, are you walking in a relationship with Jesus? If not, I want you to understand he is still seeking you. He is calling you, perhaps even goading you to repent of your sin and to return to him. And those who are Christians here today, you can ask yourself, am I kicking against the goats? Am I resisting God in some way? Perhaps he's calling you to witness to someone or to make peace with somebody else or to get involved and to serve in your church in some kind of a way. Well, Paul would say to the Christian and non-Christian alike, stop running, stop resisting. Stop kicking against the goads of God. So our holy God can indeed forgive and, and he can cleanse and he can use horrible, well-known sinners like Paul to further his kingdom. But there's another example of oxymoronic truth in this text because Saul's conversion shows us that not only can God use a known sinner, but God can also use an unknown saint. In Damascus, there was an unknown disciple named Ananias. This is not the Ananias that I talked about a couple weeks ago, just another Ananias. And Jesus gave this man the assignment to go and to visit Saul and to lead him to faith. I don't know about you, but this doesn't make a lot of sense to me because I would have thought that Jesus would have called for one of the big guns from Jerusalem. I would have thought he would have called Peter. I mean, Peter, you know, that guy had it all together he, to come and, and to deal with Saul. But instead, God picked a relatively unknown man. In fact, this is the only time we read anything about this Ananias in the Bible. He's mentioned once. And I want you to understand how difficult this assignment would have been 
for this unknown saint. You see, Ananias had heard, had not heard of Saul's uh, Damascus Road experience, but what he did know was that Saul, the persecutor, was on his way to, to arrest Christians like himself. It would be kind of like asking a Jew living in Austria in the 1940s to pay a personal visit to Adolf Hitler. In fact, when the Lord told Ananias that Saul was praying instead of arresting Christians, it was almost beyond belief to him. So he asked for clarification and God gave it to him. And this is what he said in verse 15, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Well, Ananias obediently went in the power of the Holy Spirit and he led Saul out of the darkness, both physical and spiritual. He guided him to faith in Jesus and he baptized him. And this shows us very clearly that in God's kingdom, we don't have to be well known to be used in a powerful way. Ananias has been called one of the forgotten heroes of the faith, but he's not alone. There are countless numbers of them serving Christ behind the scenes all over the world, and they remain in the shadows, oblivious to the lure of lights and of applause. In fact, the truth is only a rare few in God's family enjoy fame and renown or position and influence. The great majority of Christians are Ananiases who serve God in powerful ways, doing essential ministry. And these unknown followers of Jesus are absolutely vital because they keep the church, the body of Christ, functioning and staying in good health. We'd be sunk if it wasn't for all that they do. Behind the scenes, and every bit of it is unnoticed. Only when eternity dawns will we know the enormity of the investment that they have made for the cause of Jesus Christ. Think about it, Saul would have never become Paul without Ananias. He would have remained blind and, and trembling had this disciple from Damascus refused to obey and go as they had told him to go, as God told him to go to Straight Street and meet, meet Saul there. And this was all set into motion because God used the, the memorable faith of, of a little known but faithful hero. And his, his obedience literally changed, folks, the destiny of hundreds of millions of people throughout history. This reminds me of the story of a 14th century Italian artisan who commissioned to design, was commissioned to, uh, to build a stained glass portrait of Jesus. It was in the window in a cathedral in Chartres, France, a place that is well known for its stained glass work. After sketching the design, he gathered and carefully shaped all of the pieces of glass that he was going to need, and he laid them out on the floor in that cathedral. Even in his unfinished form, the window was a beautiful thing to behold. Most of the pieces were large and they were amazingly colorful. And, the, and in the midst of all of these dazzling shards of, of colorful glass was a very small, clear piece of glass about the size of your fingernail. 
And as the stained glass portrait was assembled there in that uh, place, that little known piece was overlooked and it remained on the floor and it laid there even after the window was installed. On the day of the window's unveiling, the entire city gathered to witness the brilliant stained glass piece of art. The artisan stood in front of the crowd and he made a speech and then he dramatically pulled down the, the cloth cover and the crowd gasped in, at the beauty of the color of that window and the sunlight that was shining through it. But after a few seconds, the people grew silent. They sensed that the portrait was unfinished, that something was missing. And as the artist inspected his work, he realized what was amiss. And he walked over to where that almost invisible shard of, of clear glass laid. He picked it up and he carefully placed it in its proper place, right in the center of Jesus' eye. And then the sun, when he stepped away, hit that piece of glass and it gave off dazzling light. And to this day, that glass exists and it still draws visitors. And the first thing that people notice when they go into that cathedral is the sparkle in Jesus' eye. Did you know that this church provides a portrait of Jesus to our community? Whenever one of us works at whatever task it is that God gives us to do, we furnish an essential part of that portrait. Some work at colorful jobs, that are certainly seen by all, the pastor, the staff, the worship leader, many of the teachers. And these people often receive praise and appreciation for what they do. But others, many more, work behind the scenes, doing things that go unnoticed. Things like cleaning and cooking, taking out the trash, setting up for our events, watching and teaching our children, praying for the needs of this church, running the sound and slides and light and preparing for communion and baptisms and ushering and greeting people when they arrive, providing security during our services. And the list goes on and on and on. And because of all of these invisible unknown members doing their things, our community sees a much clearer picture of who Jesus is. And as your pastor, I am so very thankful for all of these unknown saints. In fact, I think of you as the sparkle in Jesus' eyes. And if you're one of them, if you're one of those invisible saints, I hope you know how precious and how indispensable you are. And furthermore, I hope you understand how thankful I am as your pastor that you do all of those things for the glory of God and not for yourself. Amen. Paul wrote, in 1 Corinthians 12, 22, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Notice he says, seem to be weaker. 
<clears throat> because our impressions of what we don't see, they're always wrong. I'd like to rewrite Paul's statement, and I'd say to those parts of the body who work behind the scenes, doing things that no one sees, they are truly indispensable. I'm grateful for all of the indispensable parts of this body called High Point Assembly. Scott, will you come forward and help me to close this down? I'd like all of you to stand to your feet if you would. What we study today is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts, Paul's conversion. Because when you continue on in the New Testament, you see Paul doing amazing things to further the kingdom of God. And I find great encouragement from his story for a couple of reasons. First, it shows me that God can save anyone. How many times have you looked at somebody and you thought they're beyond help? That's where our human mind goes. We often think there's no hope for that person. We see their lifestyle, we see the, the ugliness of their life, the hatred, the violence, the, everything that goes along with them, and we truly don't think there's any hope for them. But God can save anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. When you reach out to Jesus, he will save you from your sin. He will put your feet on solid ground, just like we sang, and he will make a new creation out of you, just like he did with the Apostle Paul. And it is conceivable that you are here this morning and you even yourself think you are too far gone to have Jesus transform your life. Let me tell you, that is nothing more than the enemy placing lies into your head. You are not beyond salvation. You can receive salvation today and you can start now an entirely new path. You can be redeemed today. You can be forgiven of your past, all of your sin, and you have a fresh start in Christ Jesus. And not only can you be forgiven, but you know that shame that you always feel over your sin? That can be removed. Jesus can remove that shame from you in an instant. And in a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to receive salvation. But I wanna tell you another reason. I received such encouragement from Paul's conversion experience. And it's because it tells me that God can use anyone to further his kingdom. And as we've been discussing the early New Testament church and how it grew and how so many people were saved, it should be an encouragement to every one of you as well. Why? Because no matter what you think, no matter what it is that you fear, you can lead people to Jesus Christ. Yes, you. You can do it. See, we don't always view ourselves in the right kind of light. We tend to look at ourselves as lacking ability. We seem to think that we are ineffective or that we are incapable of being used by God and doing the things he's asked us to do. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be an instrument 
that God uses to bring others to faith in Jesus. So I wanna open up this altar this morning to anyone who would wanna receive salvation through Christ Jesus. You, sir, ma'am, you've been running for a long, long time, but you're running out of excuses, and I'm telling you, you are running out of time. Today is the day of salvation, thus says the Lord. I want you to come down to this altar, acknowledge Jesus as Lord, the only way to God the Father, ask him to forgive you of your sin, and he will. The Bible says that he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and you will be set free. Or, if you're one of these Christians who've never felt like that you have what it takes to be used by God or to lead someone to Christ, Paul's story should tell you otherwise. I believe today God wants to deliver some people in this place from fear. The fear that you have been holding on to for far too long, and quite honestly, it has put your life on hold. You've become like a record that keeps skipping at that same scratch that cannot move over to the next note. Why don't you come down to this altar and why don't you seek God and ask him to break the stronghold of fear that has been gripping your life for far too long. Maybe you're here and you have a need of some kind. I can't think of a better place than to come to the altar and lay your need at the foot of the cross, present it to the Lord. Maybe you just wanna come down here and do what, like we talked about at the beginning and that is give God praise for his faithfulness and his goodness to you. Whatever the reason is, while the worship team sings, I wanna spend some time at this altar in prayer. Come down and pray, let me lay hands on you and pray for you. And then after a time on the altar, I will come back and we will close the service in prayer. Give myself away I give myself away So you can use me I give myself away I give myself away So you give myself to you, Lord Give myself away. Give myself away so you can use me. Give myself away. Give myself away so you. Here I am. Here I am, here I stand, Lord, my life is in your hand, Lord, I long to see your desire revealed in Give myself away. I give myself away. 
While those at the altar continue to pray, they can pray here as long as they want. I'd like you to bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, thank you as always for your written word that when we dissect it, so much more truth to come out, so much greater levels of understanding. And Father, what we've come to learn today is that you can use anyone. As we've been talking about uh, the New Testament church and our part in the Great Commission, Father, I ask that this would resonate in the hearts of your people, that every one of us can be used by you greatly. God, you can do things through us that we never dreamed possible, and all it takes is for us to take that step of faith and to trust you and quit relying on ourselves, but to rely on you. Because God, you always come through. You always use us. And, and the situations and the encounters that you bring before us, you always give us the things to say, and you will always be glorified through it. And so we thank you for that. But Father, I pray against fear pray against uh, the thought that we don't measure up because God you can use each and every one of us and let that be our hearts cry that we want to be used by you Father, I pray if there's anyone in this place today who didn't come to this altar who needs to know you in a personal way that before they walk out of this building they would pray a prayer of confession of belief in you and asking for forgiveness for their sin and allowing you to become the Lord of their life so that they can start down a new path, a different way of living, a life with the promise of eternity in the presence of Almighty God. What a great gift you give us, Lord. Pray that none of us would squander that. Father, I pray also as we go our separate ways today that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps places we go the things that we do, the conversations that we have. Those conversations would be ones that build people up and not tear them down. That we would shine like bright lights in a very dark world that desperately needs to see the love of Christ lived out in others. Let it be lived out in us, Father. Let us shine so brightly that people will come to us and say, what's different about you? And then you open the door for us to share about Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would not run away or walk away from those opportunities, but we would boldly walk into them because we knew that you opened the door for us. And when you do that, you are with us through every step of it. So Father, as I always do, I pray for a divine encounter this week between us and someone else. Let someone cross our path this week where we can tell them about the goodness of Jesus Christ. And use us, Father. Use us like you used Paul. And Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that you would keep us safe from sickness and disease, any illness that might befall us, any accidents that might come our way, so that we can come together again as a full body and worship you in spirit and in truth. And as we leave here today, I pray that we would go in the love of Jesus Christ and that we would love those who we come into contact with. They will know we are Christians by our love. So I ask that you would let us be a loving people. Thank you for your presence here today. Thank you for touching lives here today, Father. Thank you for your word that transforms us. And we ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.